Hi, I'm Bernard Leung, and you may know me as the executive who hopes for US and China truths. And in my spare time, I want to understand what the tech co war means. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the power of business, technology, and media in Asia. And today I have Tim Kapan, columnist from Bloomberg. And welcome, Tim. It's great to have you back. It's been a while, Bernard. I'm really happy that we get a chance to sit down and talk again. And we're actually co opting Bloomberg's radio studio here in Singapore for the occasion. So it's very good timing.、Mm, it's a nice radio station. This is the first time I'm sitting inside there. So, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, you know what? It's been such a busy year for tech, especially in Asia, as you just mentioned. You know, the US China relationship has deteriorated. I think it's going to get worse, to be honest. And so I've been charting that a lot and looking at, you know, the, the tech cold war that's brewing between China and the US and the fact that it's really going to bring in a lot of other nations. It's not going to be isolated to just two countries. I think the whole world is going to get involved in it, whether they like it or not. So this is a pretty much. Interesting conversation that we're going to have today. We're going to talk about the tech cold war. You have recently written that May 19 is an important date for the turn of the China and US relationship, starting with Huawei being placed on the ban. Why do you characterize it as the tech cold war? I think that people need to understand that the trade war. Between the US and China is different to the moves that the US administration made to ban Huawei from buying US components. The trade war is just about trade. Tariffs being the major tool being used by the US administration and, of course, China to put up barriers between each other. But it's a real escalation to have the US government decide that they will not sell or they will not allow American companies to sell components to Huawei. In some ways, it's similar to what they did to ZTE, but it's important to note that with ZTE, there was a very clear, specific reason, and that is that ZTE had breached an embargo that the US imposed on ZTE about. Selling U.S. components and technology to Iran, ZTE basically admitted it and pledged to do better and pledged to take action. They reneged on that deal, and it was after that that the U.S. government then decided they were going to put a ban on selling components to ZTE. So that was a very clear example. There's a fair, you know, rule or law that ZTE had broken, and there was a very clear consequence. With Huawei, it was somewhat unilateral. The allegations against Huawei for stealing technology and spying and so forth have been around a long time, but the U.S. in this case didn't show any specific evidence. They didn't show a specific case, and so it was very much a unilateral escalation of this tech cold war, and it's forced China further down the path of having to develop their own technology. And it was really, it's it's one of those key moments in time where the world, including of course China and Beijing, realize that they have to go it alone. They have no. Choice now they must be able to become technology independent. So I think that is the day—the day that the U.S. administration decided they were going to unilaterally decide that Huawei cannot buy U.S. technology. That's the point at which you know the first shot was fired in this tech cold war. You think that that's way past the breaking point of the two cities? Yeah, I think there is no going back from this. I think that although U.S. President Donald Trump has conflated the trade war with the tech cold war, he's he's talking about a resolution to the trade war could result in Huawei being allowed to buy U.S. technology products. I think it's too late. You can't put that back in the box, and it's down a path that I don't think can be reversed. I don't see any, any way that Beijing and and Washington can reverse that path. So with the China and U.S. trade war breaking the global supply chain. What are its implications to Huawei, Apple, TSMC, Foxconn, and many others that are involved in this supply chain? Because they're so interlinked with each other. 
They are. I think first thing we're going to see, Foxconn is a good example to start, where they will be one of the first companies that will essentially have to split in two in terms of the way they supply to Chinese companies and into China. And they supply uh, Western companies. And in Western, I include also North Asians such as uh, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, but, you know, Western sphere of influence companies. And so what we will see, and we're already seeing this, is companies like Foxconn will set up operations outside of China. They'll expand their operations in Mexico in Vietnam, I suspect, well, obviously India as well, but I suspect we might see them uh, maybe even Eastern Europe and back in Taiwan, doing more work in Taiwan. However, they will still be operating in China and depending on how it plays out exactly, we'll probably see a lot of China shipped products, even Apple products that are shipping to China will be made in China and those that are shipping elsewhere, including to the United States, may be made outside of China. And so that is happening at Foxconn. TSMC so far has said that they're pretty much committed to Taiwan. They were already planning to expand in China, and I don't think they're changing their plans at this stage. That is a situation they're going to have to be very, very careful of because the implications for TSMC so far are unclear. They seem to be okay. They seem to be able to get around any issues, but it could escalate and they may be caught in it. And how about Apple and some of the other tech giants in the region? Well, Huawei is basically kind of giving up on selling a lot overseas. They were really only big in a few key nations outside of China. It's important to note that half of their revenue does come from China, and that includes their handset business. And the non-China area was certain key markets in, in Europe, Latin America and developing markets. So I think that it's definitely going to be a big challenge for them. They'll just have to double down on China more so. Apple, I think that people are over kind of exaggerating the impact on Apple. I don't think that it's a good thing. I don't think you can spin it any positive light for Apple. But I think that one part of it, the real impact for Apple could be more uh, Chinese parochialism and nationalism where individual citizens decide that they want to, you know, basically not use Apple because it's American. It may be, you know, a symbol of the enemy in, in many Chinese minds. But beyond that, I think there is still a, a lot of people in China who do want to buy Apple iPhones and those who don't probably aren't being swayed so much by what's going on. But there certainly will be on the margins. But at the end of the day, Apple was facing headwinds in China, you know, even one or two years ago before this all escalated. And it's important to note that the smartphone market has been facing a slowdown for a while now anyway, even before any of this came along, even before Donald Trump became US president, this this was always on the cards. So we've got to be careful not to blame the trade war and the tech cold war on too many things. It's very easy to use those as excuses, but there were already struggles faced by, by Apple and others anyway. What about Alibaba? I mean, they are going to be listed in Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Is it a way to hedge against themselves in the US market, given that they are also listed in New York Stock Exchange as well? Yeah, so Alibaba is Alibaba itself is not listed on the US Stock Exchange. A Cayman Islands variable interest entity is listed on the, the Stock Exchange. That's an important but maybe esoteric point. The point being that if you own shares in Alibaba, you don't own shares in a Chinese company. You don't own shares in a Chinese e-commerce company. You own shares in a Cayman Islands incorporated company that has a contract with a Chinese company. But the reason I think for Alibaba to consider listing in Hong Kong is not really to do with their business or their presence in the US because they really have no business or presence in the US. You know, almost all of their revenue is from China and their expansion outside of China has been in Southeast Asia. You know, they bought Lazada, for example, and, and they're doing uh, various things in India. It's really a 
about the stock itself. The hedge that I think really is there is more on the stock. And so I think that there will be a lot of hunger from both Hong Kong investors and mainland Chinese investors who will be able to invest in Alibaba through the, through the Hong Kong Stock Connect. And because of you know the basic concept of arbitrage, if Alibaba's stock does quite well, but US investors have concerns about Alibaba because of the trade war or China's macroeconomic slowdown, and I think the macroeconomic slowdown in China is a bigger issue than the trade war, they may be willing to sell or wanting to sell the stock so the stock would fall. However, if Chinese investors in Hong Kong and, and within mainland China decide that Alibaba is a company they want to own, you could very quickly see a, a price differential where the Hong Kong stock price stays quite buoyant, but there'd be downward pressure on the US stock. And that could lead to what we call arbitrage, a price differential. And if that differential gets too large, then arbitrages, you know, hedge funds and various traders can close that down by arbitraging the opportunity. I won't go into mechanics of it, but basically it's a very good hedge on negative sentiment within, within the US towards a Chinese company. So I think that is a very, very smart move for Alibaba to consider at this particular time. And it's important to note that Alibaba can only do it now. They didn't do it many years ago when they listed. They can only do it now in Hong Kong because Hong Kong last year changed its laws, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange changed its regulations that allows companies with dual class shares to list. Alibaba has a dual class uh, share structure and previously that was not allowed in Hong Kong. So Alibaba said, fine, we'll go to the US where it's allowed. The Hong Kong market didn't want to lose the Xiaomi IPO last year and Xiaomi had dual class shares. So the Hong Kong uh, Stock Exchange changed its rules basically for Xiaomi. And that's opened the door for others, including Alibaba, to come back to China or to Hong Kong, I should say, and list dual class share structures. And so I think that's an important thing to remember, that it's really because of the change in the Hong Kong listing rules that basically Alibaba sees this opportunity. So I want to get back to Foxconn. Can you describe the interesting happenings in the Foxconn leadership because of Terry Goh's decision to run for the Taiwan presidency? And what does it mean for the company? What's really amazing about Foxconn is after almost 45 years of leadership by one single man, Terry Gore, chairman, founder, CEO. As of today, as we talk, Bernard, Foxconn has no CEO. Honhai Precision Industry Co., which is the incorporated company we're talking about, has no CEO. They have a chairman. His name is Young Liu, and he's been with Foxconn a while, and he just uh, basically was appointed chairman very recently in mid-June after the AGM and the new board meeting, you know, they met to appoint him. But in place of a CEO, what they have is a management committee of nine people. The chairman is amongst those people, but he's, he's not the only one. There's, you know, eight other people, including group CFO Huang, Chen Mama, as she's known, Money Mama, and various other senior executives and long timers at, at the company. So now you have ruled by committee at Foxconn. So it's gone from a single man fiefdom to a committee ruled company and uh, I think that's going to be a fascinating thing to watch. Everything looks fine now where they had a, recently had an investor conference and everything was copacetic. Everyone got along very well and it all looked uh, very collegial. I do wonder how long it lasts. I hope it lasts and they're all very professional leaders. I'm, I'm actually more optimistic about the company having been to their first ever IR conference uh, in, in early June. I think they're a very smart bunch of people and they seem to get what's going on and they seem to have strategies in place. I'm not sure if they can execute it, we'll see, but I'm positive about it. I am very concerned about this management by committee approach that they have, and it really is a result of Terry Gore never finding a successor, never grooming a successor. So instead of making that tough, tough decision and, and just handing it to one person, he's kind of split the difference and handed it to all of them, and, and I think that's a problem. 
<laughs> you have covered Foxconn for many years, and you have also written profiles of the company as well. Given your understanding of Terry Go, and if he wins the primary against Han Guoyu, who is, I think, was one of the frontrunners of for the Kuomintang side, what will he be like as a Taiwan president? He has to jump through many hoops before he gets there. He has to be, defeat Huan, Han Guoyu in the KMT primary. As we talk, we're talking late June, so we don't know how it's going to play out. Even we don't know how the KMT primary system will work. He has to de- defeat Han Guoyu as an outsider into the party. Then he would have to defeat Tsai Ing-wen in the actual election in January. So that's two hoops he would have to jump through. If he gets through both of those and becomes president, it will be very much a president of one. It will be very top-down. It'll be very much, essentially, I think, he'll run it like he runs a company. One man is in charge and everyone else will have to bend to his will. That's the way he runs things. He doesn't know any other way. That may not be a bad thing. People might feel that that is good. One person in charge, one leader. Sometimes uh, that works for a country. In Taiwan, Taiwan is one of the most energetic democracies in Asia, if not the world. It's a place that really loves its democracy And it's a place that probably is not willing to go back to any kind of dictatorship, even if it's a democratically elected dictatorship as a Guo presidency might be. I'm not saying he'll be a dictator, but it's his management style to dictate from the top. And he could face quite a lot of opposition from not just political parties, but from Taiwanese people themselves who may not warm to that. And indications so far from his campaign tell me that he's not very flexible about listening to those who oppose him. He doesn't seem to be a fan of democracy. One of his quotes is that you can't eat democracy, that democracy doesn't put food on your table. And that's a great pithy line for for someone in his position to throw out, given he's a a multi-billionaire and Taiwan's third richest man. But there are very many down-to-earth average punters on the street in Taiwan who value their democracy. They're very proud of their democracy. They're not rich, but one thing that they feel that they do have is democracy. So there could be a real clash between a Terrigore top-down-led presidency and a bottom-up-led democracy that is Taiwan. So this would be something that we're going to continue to watch. I'm not going to ask any more on Foxconn. I'm going to move a little bit to SoftBank. I think there's something that's probably the most interesting thing that's going on. So I think my first question to you is, does everyone share Master's vision with the Vision Fund? No, clearly, especially the Vision Fund 2, which he's talking about. The Vision Fund early on was really just one or two key investors from the Middle East, plus SoftBank itself, and and everyone else came along for the ride and thought, yeah, this could be a bit of fun. We got some cash. Masa is a pretty savvy investor. Masa did well in Alibaba, for example, and did very well out of that. He was an investor in Slack, or SoftBank was an investor in Slack, which has just IPO'd. But I think that they're starting to waver about a second fund. And the kinds of people that would invest in the second funds, you know, when you go out and try and raise a hundred billion dollars, there's not that many people with a big check who can, who can sign it off. There's only an, a few sovereign wealth funds who have that kind of money and are willing to part with it. So it's more likely that it would have to go to somewhat more usual routes, such as pension funds, you know, and pension funds, they take a very different approach to what Master is doing. They want stability. They want to know that they're going to get some kind of cash flow from their investment every year because pension funds need to pay, you know, pensions out to to their pension holders. And they value, sure, they love growth. They would love to have big growth, but stability is more important to them. And Masser is not really that kind of person. He's going to make big bets and he's going to have big wins and he's also going to have big failures. And that's part of the model that he has. So I think that for a second vision fund, there could be a real problem between 
the types of investors that he will need to attract and that he wants to attract to it and the type of investments that those people would want to put their money into. And so I think that there will be a bit of a disjoint between those two groups or people or organizations. And that will make the second vision fund a lot more challenging for Masa than the first vision fund. This is where I'm very curious to know because SoftBank Vision Fund invests in both China and US startups or maybe upstarts, scale-ups. What does the tech core war mean for them then? I think Masa would see it as an opportunity. He's he's the kind of uh, he's a very optimistic person. Every challenge that he sees is an opportunity for him. He obviously sees the risks of of any cold war or any tech war, or any trade war. Is that's not good for business. But I think he's an opportunist in as much as he will be able to kind of split the difference, play both sides. They own Arm Holdings now, the UK you know chip design uh, technology company, and they actually split off a part of it sp- purely to operate in China which was a savvy move, a little bit of an unusual move. It was structured um, quite unusually, but it was a savvy move. And so I think that we'll see a lot of creativity on behalf behalf of uh, Massa. In many cases, with this tech war and this cold war developing and the trade war as well, companies will have to choose one side or the other. I think Massa will be the kind of person who just feels that he doesn't have to choose and he can play both sides and he can keep all sides happy. So I think that of all the investors out there, I think he might be okay. He hasn't invested as much into Chinese companies as uh, as he might have in the past. He's put money into India most recently. Of course, Uber is very famous uh, to have invested in Grab and various others outside of China. But if he looks for an opportunity, I don't think there'd be anything that would stop him. In fact, I think that any time there's friction between uh, you know East and West, so to speak, he'll look for an opportunity to capitalize on that. So are we in a peak soft bank? Yeah, it's hard. It's even how do you decide what is peak? <laughs> SoftBank is two companies now in terms of, you know, the stock. There's SoftBank Group and there's now uh, the SoftBank, the telco, the Japanese telco, which is now a separately listed company, which ironically might do okay in a downturn because telcos tend to do that. Although there's various uh, specific challenges within Japan that they'll face. However, having said that, I think there might be a peak SoftBank in terms of people's enthusiasm for SoftBank, for Masa and his vision fund. People are wary. I think that his absolute failure to address the issue of his one of his largest investors, the Saudi Arabian uh, you know, investor, and the fact that they seem to have been involved in the murder of, uh, of writer uh, from the Washington Post, that's a concern. A lot of people are really worried about that, that he hasn't confronted that issue head on. He's, he's demurred on that point when he's been asked about it. And, uh, and that really does hurt people's enthusiasm for him. It may be unfair to, to wrap the two together, but you know, this is an interconnected world. You get the upside and you get the downside. And, and it's, it's a very unfortunate situation that Massa, that Massa will not address it or even condemn it. You know, he, 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 at the very least you could come out and condemn it, but he hasn't done that. And I think that's really made people a little colder towards Massa than they might have been a year ago. And I think that's something that he, he just has to deal with. So where are we with Massa's recent floating of an idea that would take the vision fund public? That is classic Massa. You know, the, the business model, you, you have something with, let's say, a $100 billion of assets when he deploys the whole fund. And then you take a small portion of that and you leverage it to make, to get yourself another 15 billion by floating 15%, right? It's a beautiful idea. It's, it's poetry in motion. And uh, it really comes down to how you structure balance sheets and so forth. I think that there are definitely investors out there who would love to have a piece of the action, you know, on the stock market. It would, the trading would be very interesting because essentially it's a holding company anyway. 
the Vision Fund. You know, you can, given that a lot of those companies in the Vision Fund are publicly listed, a lot are not. So you only know a valuation maybe every quarter or every year, depending on how people value it. But you could track the uh, the underlying value of that fund on a daily basis if you wanted to, and then maybe arbitrage or look for opportunities. It would probably trade at a discount to the net asset value of the fund. SoftBank Group itself does that. I think it's very savvy on behalf of Massa about whether or not people want to invest in that listed version of the Vision Fund. Well, there will be some people who want to, but there'll be a lot of other people who'll probably stay away. Where would we be? In the next couple of months, what will you see would happen given this tech cold war has already started? I think that we're already in a tech slowdown. I'm concerned about the inventory situation on the hardware side. I think that everyone from Apple to Huawei, Broadcom, Qualcomm, TSMC, everybody is facing severe headwinds that were really on the way before the trade war started. The smartphone market was already facing headwinds. We've had massive expansion on the back end where servers, you know, a lot of servers have been bought and installed by the likes of, you know, Facebook or Google or Amazon. And that, that's something that normal consumers like you and me, we don't see that. But every time you get online and you surf YouTube, you're using a server that had to be built and shipped to, to Google. I think all of that's going to slow down. And that all of that was going to slow down before the trade war. But people will get confused and think it's specifically trade war related. And I think that's going to play out right through to the end of 2019. And you know what? At some point late in the year, we might hit the dip. We might hit the bottom of the cycle. And if you're looking from an investment point of view, you might be looking to time that bottom and get ahead of the bottom or get ahead of any up peak. It'll be tricky. But I definitely think that we have some tough times ahead. And then if you look at the Chinese economy and how that'll play out for Alibaba, for Tencent, for Baidu, for ByteDance, which is not yet publicly listed, I think there will be more and more issues facing the domestic Chinese economy, which will, which will impact those big tech names that we all know. I think it's, it's hard for me to have an optimistic view of the tech industry from a financial point of view, but there is still a lot of energy for new developments, for new technologies, maybe not in hardware, but AI, in software, machine learning. 5G is getting exciting, but we're a little bit too early to see how that's going to play out. But certainly connected devices, EVs, there'll be more EVs out there that'll be connected and so forth. But this will take a few years to play out. So for 2019 into 2020, I think it's a kind of a wait and see time for the tech industry and, and maybe pick winners if you're looking to actually invest. And I think there will be some excitement, but you've got to look for it. Tim, many thanks for coming on the show. And it's always very interesting to listen to you because you have so much insights to talk about. I think this can actually go for one day if we really have the time to do it. So in closing, any recommendations? You know what? Recommendations. Keep reading. <laughs> I, I know you always ask people, what are you reading recently? Uh, I'm actually reading a textbook, so that's a little bit boring. But podcasts, I've been getting off the more normal tech podcast route. I have been listening to, to Hans Tung and the 996 um, podcast. It's been interesting. I just discovered that recently. I know probably others have discovered it earlier. But I've been getting into uh, Invisibilia and a few other podcasts that are a little bit around, away from the tech realm. And in fact, I, I recommend that people who, even if you're really to tech like you know everybody here is get out of that and listen to something else actually i'm i'm a runner as you know and an ironman so i'm interested in listening to a recent podcast i discovered called the extra mylist which is about running training and running uh, strategies so I, I actually recommend people get away from what your core interest or what your day job is and find something totally new listen to a, a cooking podcast or read a macrame book or something like that it'll broaden your perspective that's good advice where can my audience find you 
Twitter is the easiest way, at T Culpan, T-C-U-L-P-A-N. My DMs are open, if so, if there's something you want to share with me, yeah, you can certainly find me there, and most of my work gets, you know, tweeted to that as well, as well as some of my, uh, my thoughts and stuff that don't get into a column. Just Google me at Bernard Leung. You can find this podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, Himalayas, Luminary, and Spotify. You can definitely tweet to me your feedback. And of course, you can join our Telegram channel. Give me a star on Overcast and Pocketcast and a five star on iTunes. So, Tim, many thanks for coming on the show. And I think we are just on time to get up the radio station. <laughs> Perfect timing, Bernard, as always. <laughs>